The Reverend Dr. Chris Erdman is a senior pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Fresno, California. He is the father of two young adult sons and three young adult stepdaughters. He's the author of several books, an accomplished speaker, an adjunct professor, and an oblate at the new Kamaldali Hermitage in Big Sur, California. He blogs regularly at chriserdman.com. If you visit his website, you can download his free ebook, Returning to the Center, Living Prayer in a Distracted World. This is Parenting Reimagined, a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. Would you begin by just saying a bit about yourself and your family? Well, over the Christmas holidays, we had my two sons, Josh, Jeremy, 20 and 22, Hannah, Sarah, and Katie, 20, 23, and 25. Katie is now pregnant and married to Chris, and Chris was there too. And we had three dogs, including a large boxer and a cat. And of course, my lovely wife, Patty. It was chaos in a 1,900-square-foot house, which you've been in, and I both loved it and couldn't wait for them to go. So that's an introduction to my lovely family. To your big, loud, chaotic family. Uh, chaotic, wonderful, mysterious family. How many years have you served as a pastor? Well, let's see. I was ordained in 1991, which means I'm going into 22 years, I think. And so I'm in my 14th year here. Pastoring is a is a uniquely public vocation. Your congregation looks to you for spiritual support, guidance, and many members of your congregation may look to you to be an example of the Christian family life. And I'm curious what it was like to raise your sons in the midst of such a public vocation with so many people watching you. I don't think that early on I was very aware of that kind of pressure on me, upon my, my wife at that time my sons. I think we, we were in congregations that were warm and generous and didn't lay a lot of apparent expectation on the family. But I think I was naive to the demands that are placed on the public person who is to be present at all of life's transitions. And I think increasingly I'm aware of really the permeable boundaries or sometimes the, the no boundaries at all between family life and personal life. So it's a very different kind of work because I don't, I don't leave it at night. A lot of people don't, of course. But the fact that you are both leading a community and you're supposed to be part of that community creates really interesting, sometimes strange, wonderful, no doubt, but also complex relationships. And I wasn't always aware of that and probably made plenty of mistakes along the way. Looking back, how do you think that being a father shaped who you have become as a pastor? I think that pastors have a flock and a family. And in some traditions, the pastor is called father. And there's a reason for that. There is a sense of this fatherly vocation, this one who watches over and cares for, out of that you know, strong side of the masculine, which the father represents. What I've learned about being a 
pastor by being a father? Well, to tell a story, you know, the kids, when they become teenagers, things change so dramatically. And I don't have girls, or I didn't grow up raising girls. I now have them. And I understand they're a different creature altogether. But all of them change at 12, 13, 14. You know, many men will tell me when their daughter became 11, 12, or 13, they said, what happened to my little girl? She disappeared. It's the same thing with teenage boys. They disappear and they hide. They're they're changing and they're trying to distance and individuate. Unless we make the transition in parenting from one that's more controlling, more directive, framing and, and containing the life of the little ones to those teenage years where there's a substantial shift going on, we're in trouble. The same thing happens with a congregation. There are times when pastor as father, so to speak, or as as mother have to provide strong containment for people to help them feel safe and secure. But there are other times we have to step back and recognize the very the real limits of our control. And I had to do that with my my sons as teenagers and come to terms at some point with the limits of my power and my need to both let them go while providing some kind of bounded life for them. I was helped once by a woman in my congregation. She once sent me the loveliest note because I was probably fairly transparent in a sermon about my foibles as a father. And she picked that up and sent me something. And she reminded me of a poem by Khalil Gibran, the Lebanese mystic poet. But he said, has a little poem called On Children. And it's a lovely meditation on the limits of parenthood, but the importance of parenthood. And he He talks about children that they are gifts of God. They are not my own. They are God's. And then he likens them to a bow and an arrow in the hand of an archer. He said, you as a parent are merely the bow or the string that fits the arrow in the bow. And then you are to let it go. You give it direction, but that's the best you can do. She really helped me recognize during some really difficult years of parenting, particularly around the area of video games and online gaming and the enormous amount of time young people will spend on it, how to be present to them and not control them. And so I've had to learn that in pastoring as well. It's given me some very important lessons about being present to people, guiding, directing, framing, but also giving enormous freedom. So there's a lot of parallels between shepherding children and shepherding a congregation. In terms of both holding and knowing when to let go and and let yourself be limited. Right, right. What did having children teach you about yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Big question. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen myself and my sons, of course. And you'll say, oh, dear Lord, how many hours of therapy are they going to need because of what I passed on to them? I think the biggest thing I've learned about myself through them and my relationship with them is I've just got to become more human, more present to my humanity, what I'm feeling, who I am, what my triggers are, what I've inherited from my family system, what my parents inherited from theirs, and how that gets passed on from one generation to another. My interaction with my boys and now my girls has challenged me to look deeper at who I am as a human being. What kind of masks am I wearing? What kind of games am I playing? What kind of trauma in my own past is getting triggered? What about my needs for control? I mean, I grew up with a father who was a rationalist and a very bright man, and 
I learned early on that I had to be right and good. And I had to think, think, think. I had to get it right in my head. I think I was able to put the brakes on that with my sons early enough that they're not completely controlled by the need to be right and to be good. But my own struggles to parent them, to watch them grow and to be concerned about what they're doing or my, my abilities as a parent, am I being a good father? And then when a marriage falls apart, you really feel like a mess, has helped me descend into my real humanness. And I can't be right and good all the time. How can I be me? And your kids need so much more than think, think, think. And they need so much more than rightness. Yeah. yeah. Early on, I'd gotten some, what I think now is more wacko Christian teaching about how important it is to spank your children. I tried that when they were little. And there were times out of anger and out of my deep-seated fear that I was, wasn't doing a good job and that what I was going to do was going to bend them and wreck them. I had to make sure it was right. Out of that fear, I became angry. I'd think about it later, and I'd go upstairs, and I'd say, I'm sorry. What you did was wrong, and this is why. What Daddy did was wrong, too. I was angry when I spanked you. I couldn't go into over-explaining what Daddy did, but I think that humility was a great challenge. I think that's part of the descent into this humanness, just trying to be as authentic a human being as I can be. And they're, te- they're my teachers. Which incidentally reminds me of, I think my two most meaningful moments as a father are when I dropped off each son at college. I can't remember the year now. Was it 2000? Yes, 2010, I dropped off my oldest son, Josh, at Occidental College in Los Angeles. We had a great time getting his room set up and going to Ikea and Target and getting all the stuff. And then the last day comes when I have to leave and we've gone out to buy something and we're driving back through the campus and Parents have to be off at four o'clock. All this hugging is going on and parents are crying and kids are crying. And Josh knows I'm a crier. So he and I are driving up the hill to his dorm together. And he kind of says, so dad, are you going to cry too? I said, uh, yeah, of course. But let me tell you why I'll cry. And I took advantage of this while we're in the car because I knew I wouldn't have this focused moment again later. I said, here's why I cry. I am so astonished, proud, and humbled by how much you've done with the little I've given you. I've done my best, and I think I've given you some really good things. I've made mistakes, too, along the way. But what you've done, what I've given you, is absolutely remarkable. And so, from here on out, you become my teacher. Let's learn together. I did the same kind of thing with Jeremy when I dropped him off in San Antonio at Trinity University a year later. And can remember that moment when we were having our parting. We went to this little garden and he knew Dad would get emotional. So he made sure we were out of, <laughs> out of the way from other folks. But the same kind of thing. I knew I had just a few moments. And what I said in that moment would stick. So I prepared that, you know. The chance to impart appreciation and deep trust. This is one thing I've learned about my kids and, of course, about the congregation, is to trust the mystery of their humanity. There is an essential goodness in every one of them, no matter how dark it sometimes seems. I've had to learn to trust and to convey that trust to my kids. I believe in you. I trust you. You've got goodness in you. Follow that dream. Fly. So those are really profound moments for me. And it sounds like that's been accompanied by 
your own process of learning to trust yourself, learning to trust the the non cognitive parts of you. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. That's it's been a parallel process. So another big question: How did becoming a father shape your view of God or reshape it? I think early on, I had a very strong but tender mother, and of course, a very strong and opinionated father. My mother is, or was, just a a vibrant spirit. And I think I learned from her a a deep sensitivity, an interior life. I learned the heart from my mom. I learned the head from my dad. But I think when I became a Christian, and I became a Christian from being an atheist, quickly was indoctrinated into a fairly conservative evangelical form of Christianity. And there, of course, God is masculine. The images for God are very strong, warrior, king, judge. That meant that my view of God really moved more toward my father and and the image that I had of him. My father is also a mystic of sorts, an agnostic. There's a mystic part of him, a mystic of nature, and, and a very sensitive part that's trying to find its way out. But I think early on, God was this thinking, this judging, this warrior, this king. And it was very important for me to get things right, doctrine right, leadership right. But being a father and learning how complicated it is and learning how to come into my own sense of not just the strong masculine in me, but that feminine part God has put in all of us that's intuitive, that's gentle, that's warm, that's engaged. Learning to embrace that too meant that I entered more deeply into my humanity. At the same time, I'm discovering the very humanity of God in the incarnation of God in this Jesus and realizing that the mystery of the incarnation is that it isn't that God is up and out and beyond and distant, but that this God has moved into the neighborhood, has moved into my neighborhood, my being, that has taken up my flesh, that my whole view of God has been one who who enters more deeply in, as I've had to learn to enter deeply into the life of my children that I've had to enter in with my sons and give them guidance and direction and sometimes admit a mistake. But we see this in Scripture too. God sometimes seems to apologize. You know, I think I kind of blew it there. Hosea chapter 11 is this great text where God wants to tear Israel limb from limb in such violent imagery of anger and then turns around and goes, ah, but I can't do it. You are precious to me, O Israel. Jeshurun, which is this wonderful, tender little name. My heart recoils within me and I cannot do it. I've learned permission to be a human being as a father and parent, entering into the depths of the humanity and finding my wisdom there for parenting rather than somewhere in my intellect or some book I get someplace or um, some ideology that I've got to subscribe to or some focus on the family pamphlet that tells me exactly how to be a good dad. In the depths of my being, Christ incarnate with me, the spirit present in me, All I need is here if prayerfully I will yield to it and trust it. What a theological shift after having had children. I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying, it was the experience of having these little embodied creatures to care for that did push you inward in in a different way, that pushed you to understand or experience, not understand cognitively, but experience in yourself the way in which God is so very human and gets angry and affirms his love, very parental side of God. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think we can get until we're living it. I think that's exactly right. This theology is so embodied. Any, any theology that's disembodied, any expression of the faith that's disconnected from the, the real the realities of living is, is I have no, no interest, no tolerance. It's heresy. The wonder is that we are present here in our bodies. God's embodiment in Jesus and then Jesus' embodiment with us means that we are whole. So that changes everything about the way I operate. Spirituality is to be lived in the mess of parenting, changing diapers, cleaning up, spit up, struggling with a 13-year-old who just won't talk. That's where, the, where spirituality is lived. And too often, we've separated those things. And people don't know how to live a fully vibrant spiritual life in the midst of the mess. I think we've got to find a holiness that's worthy of the mess that we live in. And I love the way that you talk about this. You haven't quite gone this far, at least in this conversation, but it just reaffirms this practice of daily life and particularly of parenting as as a spiritual practice, mm. as not something that is separate from life with God, but actually pulls us deeper into life with God. I love that reclaiming of of daily life. And I know it's something you've written a lot about and talked a lot about, but something that I think is so valuable for parents to hear. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I too long was living with the idealization that the highest form of spiritual life was the monk, the mystic, the hermit. And that's only one path. And frankly, it's a very dangerous path. And those who've walked it, and walked it whatever successfully might mean, confess that it is a very dangerous path. It is a valid path. But there's another path, and this is the path that's marked by the Incarnation. It is the path of community, embodiment, daily life. It is the path of making marriage and sexuality an expression of prayer. When I'm making love with my wife, recognizing that is as deep a form of meditation and contemplation as when I'm still and present before the divine. The married life and the sexual life is the same kind of thing. But too long we've split those things out. Is it any wonder we're so screwed up sexually and relationally? We don't understand it's all hallowed ground. Marriage, parenting, the mess of congregational life, it's all the context for living a robust life of the Spirit where every breath is a prayer. When we get that through our heads and our heads down into our hearts and this union takes place, all of life becomes intoxicatingly wondrous. Is there one sentence or a line that you would like to give to parents who are in the middle of diapering and driving around and cheering at soccer games and just sort of busy with parenting life? Well, the one that comes to mind is we are to risk everything for love. It is the only thing that matters. St. John of the Cross said, it is the only measure by which we shall be judged, the degree to which we've loved. So every morning I pray, above all, love God and love your neighbor. For when you love, you lack nothing. Risk everything for love for love is the only measure by which you shall be judged to live this life of love and everything else pulls us out and it's not some airy fairy just touchy-feely thing it is this 
rigorous, deep choice of the will that when it comes down to it, there isn't anything else that matters. And love is the very texture of prayer. So, you know, there's a mother listening to your podcast. She's just dropped kids off from at a soccer game. She's got to pick another one up at a piano lesson. Then she's got to get home and cook dinner. She's worked all day and her husband is not going to be home that night. And so she's terribly worried that maybe the distance she feels from him means that he's found someone else. And her mind is just shattered or better yet, it's locked up in fear. Risk everything for love. It's so easy to imagine monsters in the dark, and there may be some real monsters going on in that marriage. There's no question. But if she manufactures those things and becomes tight and brittle and fearful, those monsters are going to become real. So to what degree can a person give herself to love, loving herself, recognizing that what she's doing with her children and for her children is an expression of her love, even when she feels like she's really screwing it up? Try it. Keep it up. Keep going. Love, love, love. You've had some of your own experience with, with monsters, with monsters in a marriage. Your first marriage ended. I'm just wondering what that was like for you as a father to to have a marriage fall apart and then have sort of this new challenge of fatherhood. How did you do that? Not entirely well. <laughs> The things that were essential for me were, one, doing therapy, <laughs> two, having a congregation that had been trained well enough that when my life fell apart, they could come alongside me and be there for me and for my sons. And there are a lot of mistakes that my ex-wife and I made toward each other, things that I did to her, things she did to me, and those aren't important here. But what, what I did with my sons initially, I went to a therapist. I had a, a yellow pad, legal-sized, sideways, sketched out a timeline of all the things I thought I needed to do to avert the disaster, what I needed to do with it, my sons and how I could help them. I started walking it through with him, and I could see the look on his face. And I looked at him, looked down at my page. I said, this doesn't work, does it? He goes, no. A disaster, by definition, is something you really can't prepare for. What that shows is my, my need in the moment, with my sons still with me, both teenagers, I was controlling, I was thinking, I was trying to avert the disaster in the only way I knew how, which is being a strong male, figuring out and fixing everybody. What I needed was just to enter into the pain and the brokenness and the failure and the incredible embarrassment and the fear for my children. You know, the first thing you as a parent think is, what the hell is going to happen to my kids? What have I done to my children? Where are they going to go? What are they going to think of me? How are they going to hate me? None of that happened, thankfully. Yeah. In the midst of your own pain, I can only imagine the challenge of then trying to be present for your son's pain. There's a lot of pain in that season. I'm guessing that your ability to sort of authentically show how you were coping with this was, was helpful to them, that they maybe took some cues from you. Uh, I'm guessing. Yeah, I assume so. I see them now and the young men that they've become, and they're both just such remarkable human beings. I 
think that somehow through my humanness and vulnerability and brokenness, darkness, despair, and yet hope, and being bounded by a community of hope, of nurture, of truthfulness, one that didn't play games. I mean, how many pastors can go through a divorce and stay in their church? There aren't a lot. This is a remarkable community of people. My sons watched all that. And this community helped convey something of that truthfulness to them. I think they must have picked something up, but it wasn't because I intended it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you didn't sit down for a lesson on here's how we're going to manage this, men. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was present. That's the big thing I've learned, too. I have to learn to be present. In all my humanness, this is who I am. This is where I begin. This is where I end. This is where you begin, where you end. I'm not going to play games. I'm here. So you are now happily remarried to a wonderful woman, Patty. And with her came your rebirth as a father and three daughters. What new lessons have your stepdaughters taught you about what it means to be a father? Girls are amazing. What a gift to have three daughters that I didn't have to raise. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> Patty, darling, you are a saint. Raising three daughters on your own, absolutely remarkable. There's a tenderness among these girls that I, I deeply love. As not their father, and I will never be their father, but I can be another male presence. And I've learned to do that, to be present to them. I have to be very cautious. I can't overstep my role as a male in their life, a father-like figure, but not really dad as an outsider to the family system, to do things their mom, their dad, even their stepmom can't do. Because I'm, more, I'm newer, there are things I can say and hold up a mirror that are helpful. But boy, I've had, had to learn how to walk that tightrope very, very carefully. I have a wonderful relationship with each one of them. And each is unique. And the way we relate together is unique. And it's really brought new life to me. So complex and confusing. I mean, to go from two to five, and now six with Katie's husband, and now there'll be a grandchild on the way later this year, it just gets more complex all the time. Just at a time, I thought it would be getting simpler. <laughs> complex and loud and bigger, more fun and messier. Drama. There's always a kid who's got something going on. So there's never a night we go to sleep that we don't realize we could be getting a call in the middle of the night. What do you love most about this season of parenting? I love seeing the choices these young people are making and the ways they still need me deeply, but in ways I never would have thought. My son, Josh, 22, graduating in economics from Occidental College. He calls me the other day, Sunday afternoon, just, hey, Dad, how you doing? And I'm expecting you need money, you're having a problem. Just called to say hi. Well, the next day he calls to tell me, about his work as the student chair of the economics department search committee and the presentation. And he just loves to tell me this stuff. And I love to hear it. Well, Jeremy texts me the other day and says, Dad, guess what? I'm now the co-chair of the Greek society at Trinity, which he says, that means I'm in charge of all Greek life. Or Sarah's in the house right now getting ready to go to Kenya. She's 22 and... She and her English boyfriend, Will, are trying to make enough money that they can get over and work in an orphanage in the slums outside of Nairobi. 
she comes home every day after work and tells stories about the stuff she's doing in, in, at the law firm where she's working. And just to hear their energy, their vision. And Patty and I just sit back and we listen to this and then we broker conversations with them. I love that. And I love introducing them to new people. We like to have people around our big table and the kids love that table because it's where real life happens and they get to listen to interesting people we bring into the house and we expose our kids to them and them to our kids. And I love watching them become adults. And as we watch that flowering, it's really absolutely, I could never have dreamed of this. I cannot believe what I didn't even dare to dream has come true in my life. I am reborn in this life to a whole nother life that is far grander, more mysterious and lovely than anything I ever dared to imagine. A beautiful story of, of starting again and a new family. It is such a miracle. When I was living through my hell, it was so dark and desperate. Never would dare to imagine that it not only could get better, but it could get this good. It doesn't mean it's easy. We struggle, we wrestle, and we, especially with this much going on, we're, we're basically contemplatives. We, we like some space and time to pray and think and be with each other and look each other in each other's eyes as a couple. So it's far more complex. But in the, in the mess is this mystery and this mischief of God that absolutely knocks me over and never would have dreamed it. Thinking about your role as a pastor in a, in a fairly conservative community, and you are the father of a son who is happy and healthy and gay, I'm wondering what that's been like for you. <laughs> <laughs> to ask it very broadly. Yeah, wow. I mean... At the same time my marriage is falling apart, my son is coming out, my denomination is falling apart over the ordination of gays and lesbians. My church is embroiled in the conversation. Now, what do you make of all this? If one believes in God and that God is not powerless, some being that created the world and stepped back and watched, God is in the mix. So what's it like for a congregation who's in a denomination and many churches are leaving the denomination because the denomination appears to be becoming more liberal and tolerant of gays and lesbians. And the pastor of the church's own son, whom they have nurtured, shaped, who has led them in worship, been in the youth group, who's got deep relationships with a number of them. He's gay. Well, you find out that there's a lot of people in the congregation who have gay kids. And nobody else knows. I've also found people remarkably supportive in the sense that no one's ever come to me and said, you know, you have a gay son and you're divorced and we can't tolerate this. So I think people and I step back and just kind of watch what happens. And that this, again, is part of the mess and part of being human, part of being together part of attending to the mischief of God in the midst of our lives. And we open ourselves to this. I am extraordinarily proud of him and who he is and what he's becoming and how he's living his life and the choices he makes. That's awfully frightening for a parent. When you first learn that your child is gay, you're suddenly in 
inducted into a society, a secret society that few people know about. It's a society of being a parent of gay kids. The first thing on your mind is, wow, uh, I may never have a wedding like I expected. Maybe I'll never hold a grandchild like I had dreamed of. Then when your kid goes out on Friday night, you're not just afraid they might get drunk or do drugs or get somebody pregnant. You're afraid someone's going to beat the hell out of them. Where do you go to talk about those things? Who is it that can support you as a parent in that kind of experience? Gay kids are inducted into their own society, but nobody thinks about the parents of gay kids or the sisters of gay brothers or on and on and on. That's a whole nother community that is very hidden and I think needs support. Have you found support? Have you found places to talk about these fears and challenges? Yes, some. And there's a community here at this church of, of people who have gay kids and, and gay brothers or sisters and who need a place. But we've never been able to pull that together. I've just been too busy with so many other things. But there are people who are aching for that. We have found adequate support. It's kept me sane. But also being in a community of people who come from very different perspectives on this, but who nevertheless have, are courageous enough to say, this is complicated. To be Christian means to be involved in that complicated journey together. And I'm proud of our people just as much as I'm proud of my kid. Hmm. That's beautiful to hear. Well, I know that, that we're out of time. Anything else that you want to add or say quickly before you have to run? Yes, there is. Practice I find most helpful to keep us rooted in the present. And Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here now. Not somewhere down the road. Here now. All the fullness of God, says Paul, is in us. Those principles lead me to a practice that helps me live in the mess as a parent as a husband, as a pastor. And that is simply returning as often as I can to either the beating of my heart or the breathing of my lungs. Every breath becomes a prayer. So when I'm stressed or fretful or pulled apart or too busy, the best thing we can do is simply return to the breath and breathe. God breathed over creation. The Spirit of God hovered over the deep creation erupted. God breathed into the mud that was Adam, kissing it to his lips, breathing life into it, and Adam flourished. John chapter 21, Jesus appears after the resurrection, and what does he do? He breathes on the disciples. Our breath is prayer, and it's the simplest way to pray, and it keeps people who are in the mess rooted in a spiritual practice they can return to all the time. So I simply breathe in, and I say, Jesus, I breathe out and I say mercy over and over and over again until with every breath in and out, the name of Jesus is on my lips. Kabir, who is a great Indian mystic and poet from the Middle Ages, said that every breath that does not bear the name of God is a wasted breath. St. Teresa of Avila in the West said that let us pray until our very breath whispers the name of God. So for those who are listening to your podcast, 
for people who are looking for some kind of practice in the midst of the busyness, the chaos of parenting. Breath is the simplest thing we have to bring us back to the present, bring us back in the presence of God. It's my breath that keeps me living. It's my breath that's kept me hopeful. It's my breath that's kept me rooted in God through all of this. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to talk with me this morning and for sharing the movement that God has made in you. I think it's really a gift. It's a bit of a delight to talk. Thank you. On Children by Khalil Gibran Read by Tammy Ramage Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth, the archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting.